Welcome to the Healthy Rich Podcast, where we're talking with leaders and creators in finance, fintech, and beyond about how we can make money better for everyone. I'm your host, Dana Miranda, a personal finance educator and the founder of Healthy Rich, a platform for inclusive, budget-free financial education. My guest today is Crystal Whitaker. She is a leadership development and DEIB consultant specializing in inclusive coaching and consulting for brands and leaders that care deeply about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. Crystal brings over 15 years of creative, relational, process-driven experience across multiple industries. She's a self-described corporate-trained creative hippie who puts a strong focus on core values to help people elevate their community connections, to communicate and lead with clarity and confidence. Crystal is an advocate for leaders and organizations that provide resources and support for healing, particularly in relation to trauma. All right, Crystal Whitaker, uh, thank you so much for being here for the Healthy Rich Podcast. I'm uh, really excited to connect with you and talk more about your work. Thank you so much for inviting me, Dana. I'm excited to have this conversation. Yeah, fantastic. So um, let's dive right in. The first thing I really want to talk about is kind of getting to the basics. So you are a um, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging consultant. Mm -hmm. Um, From what I see from your work, you chiefly talk about inclusion and belonging a lot. Mm -hmm. And for people who aren't familiar with the the distinctions between those terms. Can you start by defining diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, and why we use all of those terms and kind of what what the differences are? Yeah. So I will say for anyone who is tuning in, I'm not going to give the standard, you know, Merriam-Webster or Oxford Dictionary definitions. I'm going to share my perspective and how I approach it and invite anyone tuning in to go look up those definitions on your own. I like to give people homework because that's part of the work, right? Um, That's great. So, And and we're looking for perspectives, so that's perfect too. Yeah. (laughs) So when I think about this, there is one framing that I like to share with people when we're looking at uh, particularly a diversity representation and inclusion, because that's what a lot of this work was was really born out of, you know. Um, so I think about diversity as something that brings people in. It essentially gives them a seat at the table. Representation is uh, what gives them a voice and allows them to speak their piece. And then inclusion is what makes people feel welcome, heard, and understood. And when we think about inclusion from the perspective of DEIB work, inclusion to me is really about connecting with people on a genuine level to understand their lived experience and really create space for them to feel a genuine sense of belonging. And belonging is a little more challenging to define because my sense of belonging is going to be different from your sense of belonging and so on. So what I have started shifting towards to create the connections for people is helping people to actually create brave spaces rather than safe spaces. Because when we have these brave spaces, yeah, yeah. I actually, this is something that um, I I learned a lot more about when I went through a trauma-informed training program. And when we make the shift of trying from trying to create safe spaces to creating brave spaces, we are essentially creating an environment where we ourselves 
as the, you know, the leaders in those environments are showing up bravely as ourselves and creating the opportunities for people to show up as their whole entire human selves where they don't have to segment off who they are and they can be brave enough to be honest about their identity, their lived experience and their perspective of the world. And that also creates a trickle down effect or a ripple effect where people who are also a part of that group or environment can also feel brave enough to do the same. So when environments are brave, that invites people to really show up as their whole human selves and they can create that um, really self-attunement, personal attunement to determine whether or not this is a space that I belong. And that's really where, where belonging begins is creating that space for people to feel like they can be whole in their humanity. And what do you think we're missing in safe spaces and the way that we conceive safe spaces that makes that shift to the idea of brave spaces feel necessary? I think what we're missing, and and this is probably a a sideways answer, um, is lack of assumption. People are often really quick to assume like, oh, I'm a safe person and, you know, I I mean no harm. People get really caught up in intent versus impact Mm -hmm. and they're not always tuning in to the people around them. They're really caught up in that um, idea of, well, this is my intention without fully understanding what everybody might need or what everybody's lived experience might be in that space. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm also curious with the work that you do, because I'm familiar and certainly, you know, there's been an explosion um, in, in the space over the last couple of years with DEI consulting for businesses and companies. And there's a lot of talk about um, company culture in the space, but it sounds like what you, the kind of work you do and, the, and what you're talking about is inclusive of a brand So I'm curious um, how you look at this kind of on different sides, because a lot of what we talk about, I think, is how to be inclusive toward employees and create an inclusive uh, internal environment. Mm -hmm. And so what is the difference between that and the work that we need to do to be inclusive toward customers or the audience for a business? Yeah, I love this question. So I while I dub myself as an inclusive brand consultant, I still work with individuals within organizations. I I often work with the the founders and the CEOs in a lot of cases, um, since I'm more focused on small businesses. So for the work that I do, when I think about branding, of course, we're looking at your business and the overall brand. And we're also considering your personal brand as a leader. So branding is all encompassing of the organization and the leadership. Um, When I think about brands being inclusive, we're looking at everything from, you know, marketing campaigns, language, email newsletters, what do your nurture sequences, what language is taking place within those uh, communications? What are, what are consumers or customers who land on your website, your social media, or anywhere that you have an online presence or a physical presence? 
what are they receiving when they encounter your brand, whether it is the organization that you have built or anything that you as the leader are putting out? Because those things, they're, they're a lot more synonymous than people want to admit, <laughs> um, yes. especially as, as society evolves, people are really wanting to buy and work with humans, not just products. So even if it is a product, they still want to know what, what, um, what human elements are behind that product. And when we're thinking about everything that you're putting out into the world that people see and experience as a part of that brand, it should also be reflected internally. So it can't be performative. It can't be something we, we're, we're in Pride Month, right? So we see a ton of what, what is called yes. rainbow washing in corporate America. Um, okay, great. You support the community this month, but do you support the community throughout the rest of the year? If you make donations from your organization, where are you donating to throughout the year? So really being mindful of not only what you're putting out to, you know, ultimately, ultimately drive sales or reason business to drive sales. But if you are really only doing things for the sake of your bottom line and you're not actually supporting the people in those communities throughout the year, then it's performative and that's going to be reflected internally as well. Want more from Healthy Rich? On our website, you'll find stories that explore the ways money intersects with our culture and individual lives from writers whose voices you won't hear anywhere else in personal finance media. Soon, we'll launch live virtual classes to offer inclusive, budget-free financial education that makes money better for everyone. Be the first to know when we've got something new to offer by signing up for the Healthy Rich newsletter. Head over to healthyrich.co after the episode to join us in this new kind of conversation about money. And now back to the show. What kind of disconnects do you tend to see when you get in organizations or small businesses um, with that, like you mentioned, rainbow washing or celebrating Black History Month or, um, you know, suddenly speaking up about um, about civil rights during protests or something um, when when companies feel safe to do it or feel like it's trendy to do it. Mm -hmm. How do you address that? disconnect then when leaders in an organization, I assume, believe that they're doing what they need to be doing um, because they celebrate Pride Month or something. Um, how do you take it to the next step? How do you help people understand that that's not really enough, that that's not really the point, and then to like broaden that so that there is that support year round and that genuine support? Yeah. So I am incredibly fortunate that the majority of my clients, I, I honestly don't think I've had any clients where there's a lot of resistance to this and where um, I have to do a ton of dragging people along, so to speak. That's um, great. Yeah, I'm really fortunate. And I attribute that mm -hmm. to my own language that I put out into the world. Like if people are coming to work with me, they know what they're getting and they're coming for the most part ready. <laughs> so uh, what I what I typically see is organizations that I have paid close attention to as a part of my own market research to be mm -hmm. able to do the work that I do with my clients. And one of the things that I see over and over again is companies not actually investing in the work uh, or treating it as just an add-on or a checkbox 
type of situation rather than an integral way of operating. Mm -hmm. And there's also issues where uh, companies will put labor on employees who are part of marginalized communities to help the company appear more inclusive. And that's not okay either. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, And I imagine, especially during these, like, during Pride Month, mm-hmm. we're suddenly highlighting our LGBTQ community, um, the community in our businesses and things like that. So you just mm-hmm. like have extra work during that month. Yeah. Um, so where do you see in general, whether um, organizational leaders are making DI, uh, DEI efforts or not, um, if they're just sort of business as usual, where do you see them falling short on inclusivity in particular? Um, I I think it's just kind of a a reiteration of what I was just talking about, really not investing in the work, not seeing the value of having out even even an outside consultant or a DEI department. So a lot of the businesses that I work with tend to be smaller businesses. So they're not going to build out a DEI department. However, they can invest in bringing a consultant in to do some of the things that I do or, or people like myself do where we're really investigating what type of language are you putting out? How is, how is your offering your service or your product in alignment with your core values and how are your core values connected to your commitment to inclusivity. That's really the key to the way that I approach the work is getting people rooted in their core values first and foremost so that when we're doing the disruption of bias work on a personal level as well as looking at any biases that they have in relation to the business itself, making sure that everything can be related back to their core values so that when they feel that discomfort going through bias, okay, but how is this discomfort showing up? How, how is you working through this going to ultimately help you honor your values? And as you honor your values, how are you doing it through an inclusive lens? And um, talking about like falling short on inclusivity and you um, mentioned a little bit too, um, using kind of DEI efforts as like check boxes and things like that, where it's not really a core part of the organization. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to these definitions again, sure. um, because some things that I have heard are sort of that diversity, equity, and inclusion are kind of treated like a uh, like tiers of of inclusivity, mm-hmm. or um, and that a lot of organizations sort of get stuck in this idea of um, diversity, which is much more related to kind of just checking boxes or putting um, people from marginalized groups um, kind of at the forefront just so that your organization looks diverse, but you're not doing that deeper kind of work to get towards inclusion and belonging. Mm -hmm. So for organizations that think or leaders in organizations that see that they're sort of checking the diversity check boxes, um, how can we go deeper and, um, and take the steps that we need to take to make sure that we're working toward actual inclusivity and um, making people feel welcome and like they belong in an organization instead of just feeling like a token? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So in this, I think it's where equity comes into play, right? Because 
equity is when you are considering where everyone is and determining who needs support to actually create fair opportunities. So it's about really considering, again, everyone's lived experience, uh, how certain things within the organization may be impacting them because of their different lived experience and asking questions. I mean, sometimes leaders will just make decisions because they think that it is the best decision for the organization or the team overall without actually consulting the members of the team. And these are the people who are ultimately executing whatever deliverables or what whatever uh, initiatives are put out by leadership. So you want to make sure that everyone feels like they have a voice, like they are valued within the organization and they're not just a cog in a machine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, is that, it, that sounds like it's a lot of like the investment that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So leaders aren't putting necessarily the time or the resources behind supporting people at, mm -hmm. um, with the different resources that they need as, as they're being brought in. Yeah. And it's, it's not a matter of, you know, just inviting someone in to do a training or two or three, um, doing real diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging work. Again, it, it is an investment and it's not just about the financial investment. It's the time investment, the energy investment. Um, and mm -hmm. it's not something that is going to resolve anything that is in need of revisiting or evolution over a series of two or three 90 minute trainings. It's something that is, it's a continuous ongoing practice. Yeah, absolutely. And you, I'm glad you mentioned the energy investment. Mm -hmm. I think, um, especially for people like I'm a white woman for anyone listening to the podcast and not watching a video, um, that, I think there can be an initial reaction. So for people who have privilege in the office, think that uh, making inclusion efforts to be inclusive is just going to be an extra job on top of our job. And so we resist it in that way. But I think it's good to remember that um, if we're not doing that, we're putting that extra labor and expecting that extra energy of people in marginalized groups that we are mm -hmm. not you know, putting those inclusion efforts towards to make them feel included in the office. So yeah. it, um, I think that there's resistance in that way that it feels like um, that something more is being asked of us. But I think we need to remember that what's, what we actually can do is something more already is being asked of some people in an organization mm -hmm. and we can help to level that playing field a bit and kind of transfer who's taking on all of that energy. Yes. Or who absolutely. all that energy is being required of. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I think, I think that's a big, um, a piece that's not talked about enough is the energy piece. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. Oh yeah. And energy is huge. You know, we, we all, uh, we all experience energy. We have our own energy levels. Some days it's higher, some days it's lower. And what, what we're able to contribute shifts as well. And the other piece that I think is really important to know is that energy is actually contagious. 
nobody, not a lot of people talk about that, but energy is contagious. So whatever is being trickled down by leadership, even on an energetic level is going to permeate a team. Absolutely. That's a great reminder as well. Uh, so let's talk about the importance of inclusive language. Um, I, as a writer and someone who works in media, this is very prevalent for me. I'm also just kind of a big nerd about it. So anything that I can learn is really important. But I think in general, like because we're all on social media and we communicate through mostly text um, mediums mm -hmm. that we're all kind of mini media companies now. So can you share some tips for people to keep in mind as we consume media to understand what we're reading, um, as we choose which stories to share on social media and just communicate in public in general? Yeah, I, I actually just uh, did a masterclass a month or so ago on incorporating inclusive language. So I love this question. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> um, so um, some basic things that I will start with. Um, I always remind people to avoid gendered language. Um, shift from using behaviors as adjectives to describe people or things. So one example is, you know, like the word crazy. Um, mm -hmm. uh, that, that's one example that I can share and avoid using uh, labels or self-identifiers to describe people without consent. So examples would be, you know, oh, that person, that person is so gay or that person is bipolar. Maybe mm -hmm. shift away from things like that and also replacing ableist language with more thoughtful language. So a quick example on this one is rather than using words like hear or listen, I replace them with check out or tune in. Um, yeah, that's, so just, a, that's a new one for me. This is why I love talking about language because there's always something new. <laughs> yeah, well, and especially in the podcasting space too, right? It's so easy to be like, oh, mm -hmm. listen to this podcast or did you hear this podcast? Just swap out the language because sometimes there are people who are tuning into podcasts, particularly podcasts that are considering uh, the deaf community and providing transcripts or they yes. are subtitling their videos if they, if they also share the recordings on YouTube. So just those minor little shifts that make a really big difference for entire communities of people. Mm -hmm. And then uh, these are things that I also pay attention to when I am consuming any media. If I, if I see headlines or if I see captions that are written, I will, I'll notice, you know, the type of language that people or companies or outlets are using and determine whether or not they are people that I actually want to consume more information from. Right. I, th yeah, that's kind of what I'm thinking when I am thinking about how can we keep inclusive language in mind as we consume media is just understanding, not necessarily to, um, to find ways of judging media outlets necessarily or calling them out or anything, mm -hmm. but just to understand where they are, uh, where they're coming from, uh, so that we can know if this is the right ally or the right resource for the purpose that we're using. Because in some cases, it just might not be you have to sort of be aware of like before you share a story with someone, like you said, with this, the kind of language, if someone's talking about listening to a podcast and you have a deaf friend that you want to share a podcast with and you know that they consume it in a different way, mm -hmm. that language can be very othering. So yeah. 
just kind of being aware of those things, even if it's being aware of, of the language around you beyond just using the right words, you know, that Mm -hmm. people have like trained you kind of to use that there's a real meaning behind it. Yeah, absolutely. And I also, I also want to clarify here too, this, this is a learning evolution. A lot of this information is it's becoming new to people. And the difference is, you know, as you receive new information, how do you receive it? Do you get defensive or are you open to having a conversation around it and potentially shifting in areas that you believe will be beneficial for not only yourself as a leader, but also the community or the audience or the teams that you interact with. Um, and for things that are on social media, for example, I, I know I don't play around in people's comments or anything like that. I don't, I don't go online and say, oh, you should have said this. <laughs> I don't do that. But what I do do is I will look at the common threads I will pay attention to what people are saying in the comments sometimes and see if uh, whoever is sharing those things, how they're engaging, if they're engaging at all and how they're receiving feedback, because that also helps me discern if this is a brand or a person or a leader that I want to continue paying attention to. Mm hmm. That's great. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But again, it's we don't need to be calling people out, but there's a lot of information in in the things that people are putting out in public for sure. Yeah, um, absolutely. And and if yeah, if you're comfortable or or you're in a position to do it, you know, calling someone out or calling them in privately, I think is is also fine. I don't want to <laughs> um, I don't want to say that's not okay, but it's not right for all of us. Yeah, um, and sometimes it's just a matter of asking a question I, privately too, right? Yes. <laughs> like rather than calling yeah. them out publicly, just quietly, <laughs> hey, why did you share this or say this? Have you considered mm-hmm. how it could be impacting to certain groups of people? Yeah, it could really start an important conversation. Um, mm-hmm. and, and those are conversations that we need to get more comfortable having for yeah. sure. Um, and I'm curious too, I kind of want to say this as we're talking about inclusive language, um, because as a language nerd, I'm sort of obsessed with the idea that it all like, like how much language evolves because there's mm-hmm. always, I, I do see a lot of pushback a lot of times when we're talking about, um, inclusive and conscious language that people, have trouble using it because it's regularly changing. Like what is the quote unquote correct thing to say? And so people start to push back or put up walls thinking that um, they may just never get it right. Mm -hmm. But it is always changing because we're always learning and because that's just what language does. And so on the language side, I always kind of uh, remind people of that, that like, yes, it is always changing and that's okay because that's, that's, how we use words. But I'm curious from a broader perspective, if you see that same thing happening in the DEI industry or in sort of the way that we approach inclusivity, especially in organizations in Mm -hmm. general, like, do you see the same kind of, like, as we learn more, seeing a lot of rapid change in how we do things and, and, um, people having trouble kind of adapting to that or understanding the pace of change? Um, I think one of the most straightforward examples that I could share here would be when we think about acronyms, uh, because in the DEI space, there's a lot of acronyms. So, Mm -hmm. um, prior to 
2019, 2020, we saw a lot of POC for people of color. And that was an, it was kind of an all encompassing blanket term and it was people of color. And there were conversations in the DEI space where um, educators and consultants were like, but not everybody wants to be identified as just a person of color. You know, maybe they want to honor their Asian heritage or their black heritage. We, we need more. And then we start, we started to recognize more uh, broader terms and, BIPOC became this mm-hmm. thing. And so black, indigenous and people of color and even BIPOC, I, I use it. However, I still, I still don't love it. It's one of those things that is simply recognizable to a lot of people. So if I'm trying to get a point across, sometimes that is what happens. But even with BIPOC, again, you're identifying black and you're identifying indigenous people, but everybody else who isn't white is lumped in again to that POC uh, acronym. Mm -hmm. And then there is also this other shift around um, uh, Black, Indigenous people of color, Asian Americans being lumped in and uh, under the umbrella of minority. I don't love the term minority. A lot of people, a lot Mm -hmm. of people in this space don't love the term minority. So Mm -hmm. you'll see instead of minority, the use of marginalized communities because they're, you know, usually ones written in the margins, so to speak. Um, But the reality is that people who are not white actually aren't the minority when we think about the global majority. So I'm starting to actually notice more people using the term people of the global majority to replace BIPOC or POC. And then there's that introduction, that, that acronym POGM for people of global majority, but not everybody is yet familiar with that. So they're still right. being used interchangeably. I think as this work evolves and it, it becomes truly more commonplace, I think we'll see that shift just like we did from POC to BIPOC to hopefully POGM (laughs) and Mm -hmm. that could potentially change in the future. Who knows? Yeah. yeah, I imagine it will, as we continue to learn and evolve Mm -hmm. and understand and hear from more people, um, we keep the same thing has happened in the LGBTQ plus community that we continue to add to that acronym to be more and more inclusive and understanding of people's identities. Um, But at the same time, I think the more and more that that happens, the more, voices we're hearing saying, well, actually this doesn't represent me and I don't fall under this umbrella. And the, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and then I feel kind of left out for this reason. Um, and so I don't know what the answer to that is, but I think ultimately what's happening is that we're trying to put people into groups and categories when actually every person is an individual that Mm -hmm. just needs to be recognized for who they are and what their experience has been. Yeah. Um, but it, yeah, but it's it's interesting to see and and to learn. And like you said, a lot of times it's just what we're looking for is a way to communicate with each other. And so you have to use what the best thing that we have come up with to mm-hmm. say something that the person you're talking to is going to understand. Yes, yes. And I love this conversation around language, too, because I was literally just having a conversation about language with someone close to me the other day. So it's very timely. And one of the things in in relation to the LGBTQ plus or LGBTQIA plus community, however you choose to identify it. One thing that I have noticed with Gen Z on TikTok that I actually find incredible 
incredibly brilliant and hilarious as they, they're starting to call it the alphabet mafia, which I kind of love. <laughs> oh, that is great. And it's easier to say too. <laughs> I'm like, oh, it's fun. Okay. Yes. <laughs> um, I'm loving everything that Gen Z is coming up with. They, they, oh. They're really <laughs> figuring things yeah. out. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Well, and it also speaks to the expansion, you know, because um, um, baby boomers and even Gen X can look at Gen Z and be like, oh, you're so entitled, you're so spoiled. But is it really that? I don't I don't think that that's what it is. I think that they that generation was raised by a more progressive generation and that, you know, the generation millennials were raised by progressive parents. It, it's just it's it's an expansion mm -hmm. through the generations. I had the privilege of um, hearing Dr. Angela Davis speak recently, and she put it so beautifully. She was saying, you know, um, for the black community in, in, in particular, our ancestors could not have imagined the world that we live in now where black people have all of the, you know, quote unquote, freedoms and privileges and rights that we do. And yet there is still more work to do. So there's always going to be opportunities to expand upon what we have learned and what we have built. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, the point that you brought up earlier about when you learn new things, do you resist it or do you stay open to it? Um, that that's really kind of the point that we're at is that we need to know that we're not ever done learning mm -hmm. regardless of how much we know or how old we are or anything, um, how much life we've lived, that we need to stay open to that. Yeah. And that's, um, I'm kind of at a turning point age-wise. I'm in my mid-30s. And so it's like I'm very determined to remain, <laughs> to stay open-minded and to realize that I'm not done learning mm -hmm. um, for the rest of my life. But I, I know that that gets very difficult because you've, you've learned a lot and experienced a lot by this point. But yeah, um, that's the goal. <laughs> yeah, we should always, always be learning. Yeah, for sure. Um, so before I let you go, is there anything else that you would like to leave us with um, to let people know a little bit more about your work um, and just the message that you want to get out into the world? Um, sure. So I will say because my a lot of my work is centered around core values if that's something that people are in, interested in engaging into a little bit more, I have a free guide available on my website. It's a core values guide. And that can help you start digging in into how you can actually start creating language around your values with an inclusive lens. So that's available on my website. Um, and since we talked so much about language, if people are interested in the masterclass on inclusive language, that's available as well. Oh, good. Good. Um, can, what is your website? Um, it is crystallily.co. And I will, I'll also share that with, um, with you behind the scenes as well. So you can put, yeah. put it in show notes. Yeah. yeah. I'll make sure that it's linked for anyone looking mm -hmm. at show notes or anything, but just anyone who's, who's listening while they walk or something wants to punch yeah. it in, just wanted to make sure that that's available for them. Yeah. Crystallily.co. Right, well, Thank you so much, Crystal. Um, this is fantastic. And I know, like we were saying, there's a lot more learning to do and there's a lot more conversation to be had. So I hope to um, stay in touch and I hope that we'll hear from you again. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, Dana.
Do you know someone who could use a broader perspective on work and money? Share this episode to invite them into the conversation. Head to healthyrich.co for more information from today's episode. And while you're there, sign up for the Healthy Rich newsletter to be the first to know when we drop something new. And remember our motto, work should be fun and money should be easy. Thank you for being part of our quest to make money better for everyone.